This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. What's up, bad movie lovers? I am your host, Nick Scheiss, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Bad Movies We Love. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. That's right, you are the resistance, and you can help support that resistance by going to coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com, slash badmovieswelove. But as many of you have already done, you spread the word. Word of mouth and things like rating the show on your podcast platform also go a really long way in helping an independent podcast like this one as well. And for today's episode, we're talking about a movie that had my friend Sean, who you might remember from the Morbius episode, asking me what poor soul I enlisted to help me with this one. But this show is on a volunteer basis, and this time it was a friend of the show, Daryl McGrath, that reached out to me and claimed a movie off my wish list. So without further ado, it's time for one of the crown jewels of bad movies we love, and that's Ate de Young's Drop Dead Fred from 1991. A lot of people probably will not like this movie. Who is this movie for and who is it geared toward? It's for me. The tone is definitely all over the place, I think. I mean, I like that about it, but it's also like kind of weird. It boasts a whopping 11% on the tomato meter. Who is this guy? He's terrifying. He's scary. Why is he such a disgusting pervert? You know, he's like a young boy who's just like disgusting. You know, he's like makes lewd jokes and is like stupid and putting a snot everywhere. Not only shameful, but outright illegal. I see a man and he's he's chaotic and he does terrible things. Am I supposed to be laughing here? Is this this is very traumatizing. It's jaunty. She wants to, like, be gross and, like, pick her nose and flick boogers and she wants to make mud pies. It is it is kind of like a coming-of-age film, except that she's coming-of-age as an, as an adult. Dara, thanks for joining me. It's uh, afternoon for me and probably, what, late afternoon for you now? Uh, it's late afternoon here, yeah. It's uh, nice, been a nice uh, summer day still, just about. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still hanging on to summer. I'm not ready for yeah. fall yet. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I don't do well in the heat, so it's not it's not the worst, you know. Me either, but I don't have a choice because yeah. I, li- I live in Los Angeles, so yeah, yeah. When it gets you hot, get some, it gets hot. You get some real hot days there. Yeah, we do. Uh, but thank you for joining me to talk about a movie that is uh, well, well, it was a big part of the inspiration for the reason that this show exists. So I consider okay. it one of the crown jewel movies for this show. <laughs> uh, and that is Drop Dead Fred from, was it 91? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's gone into past its 30 year anniversary. I didn't even know that there was a 25th anniversary Blu-ray. Oh, really? Yeah. So that when I yeah. watched it, I was watching an old DVD from, you know, the beginning of DVDs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, it's not it's not it's still not a film that's kind of been seen by all that many people. Um, 
it was definitely very popular within my family. We watched that movie, I don't know how many times. We had it on VHS, obviously. Um, and we were big Rick Mail fans. So everything Rick Mail did, we kind of wanted to watch. Uh, yeah, he was pretty yeah. popular outside of the US. So I think mainly, mainly, mainly UK and Ireland. I mean, that was yeah. kind of. That was I heard like Australia and, and New Zealand as well. He had a pretty good fan base. So it was kind I'm of sure, a weird yeah. mix for this film to mm-hmm. to like star him. But then it was also sort of like an independent studio. So it didn't have the backing to really push him uh, as the star in these overseas markets. So I don't think it ever really found its footing that way. So it's kind of like this weird secret that like if you know, you know, and if you don't, you probably would just look at this movie like it's a disaster, which I know a lot yeah. of people do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kind of it kind of is. It's just a very weird. It's a very weird movie. I mean, well, we're probably going to get into it, but I mean, you just, you know, who is this movie for and who is it geared towards? It's, it's a difficult kind of question to answer sometimes. It is because, I mean, I saw it in childhood i was i don't know seven (laughs) seven eight years old and you know i had watched it around that time and then probably again when i was in my early teenage years but i've watched it many times throughout my life uh, into adulthood at many different stages of adulthood and it's never a movie where i thought i didn't like it but it's always been a movie where i've sort of recognized that a lot of people probably will not like this movie (laughs) (laughs) definitely and i think um how much you can take Rick Mail is maybe a large part of that. I mean, his his sort of demeanor and his antics are they can definitely rub people up the wrong way, I'm sure. Um he's sort of like a Jim Carrey-esque before Jim Carrey was even around. But you know, he's got that kind of um ace ventura energy, is how I would put it. Yeah. And this character was written specifically <clears throat> for him. So it's interesting to see that he has this kind of um, personality that can be maybe very grating and it wasn't necessarily the right audience to mix him with Phoebe Kate for this movie but uh, you had mentioned that this was a family that or excuse me that this was a film that was like popular within your family so Mm -hmm. was it something that like your parents showed to you or you all Rick Mayall fans before the movie came out and that's kind of how you cross that bridge if we were, yeah, it was definitely my my eldest sister would have been, she's about 10 years older than me. So um, I was the youngest in the family. So she kind of introduced us to a lot of stuff like that. So there was a show called Bottom that him and his kind of, um, his partner in comedy, Aid, Aid Edmondson, uh, they had this show and it's just about these two. I mean, I don't think as kids, we should have been watching it really because it's it's about these two real like disgusting men living together <laughs> and getting and it was it was very much just in their apartment usually there was like odd episodes where they would leave but it was a very kind of basic sitcom but not a sitcom it was like a, a like they did very dirty jokes very kind of questionable humor i mean i haven't seen it in years but i i a lot of like fart jokes and you know poop jokes and everything like that and uh rick mail he's also in the young ones which was another popular show that we would watch i don't know if you're familiar with um did you did you have that show or did you ever see that show? I didn't. I mean, it sounds like something I would like based on how you've described it. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like yeah. It, Rick was not a, a person that I knew of before this film. And mm-hmm. that, I mean, I can hear your accent. Are you from Ireland? 
Yes. Yeah, I am. I'm Irish. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I, maybe those were just things that were on TV that like I was never going to have access to. But thanks to the yeah. internet, I can go back in time and probably find a lot of that stuff. Oh yeah, you can watch. I mean, you can watch his Black Adder stuff. Uh, Black Adder was the show with uh, Mr. Bean with uh, Ron Atkinson. Mm. Uh, that was the show that got him his start on BBC. And um, Rick Mail plays a pretty much the same character. <laughs> he just kind of breaks down the door and starts causing chaos and saying random things. Uh, and then there was the Young Ones, which was like he was a kind of a that was a real punk show. It had it used to have like uh, guest shows, guest artists. So you'd have Motorhead on there and. Uh, madness and a lot of like 80s Thatcherite kind of you know that era of of, of music in uh in the UK and stuff like that. Well, that does it was, it was pretty fun. cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, gonna, the young one stuff is out. very weird. Yeah. Well, you had also mentioned Jim Carrey, and oddly enough, they had mm-hmm. floated the idea for a sequel for this film and had yeah, yeah, had Jim Carrey in mind, and then I think he's he had signed on to do ace ventura at that time so it was really before like he had exploded in popularity but interesting that you made that connection and that was almost reality at some point after this film but this movie did not do well enough to warrant uh, (laughs) a sequel i don't think jim carrey made the right choice probably Uh, in the end (laughs) yeah i don't know it would have been weird with jim carrey i think uh i also read that robin williams was was offered the role uh, which I can kind of see, actually, Robin Williams. Yeah, I mean, that would have it, been be nicer. It would be a much more mainstream, uh, like you said, nicer <laughs> comedy yeah, yeah. family film than this ended up being. But I think that's what made this such an endearing film for me is that it was so mm-hmm. atypical compared to what else was out there at the time, because it does have this weird imbalance of, like you said, who is this movie for? And in talking Mm -hmm. to another friend of mine that's in the film club, he too asked the same question watching it. Who is this for? And I just default to it's for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's for people like me that uh, didn't really like have a sort of clearly defined box of like what their movies are going to be. And like there was a time where it was basically I just watched whatever my mom put on and she didn't want to watch things that she didn't want to watch. So I didn't really watch a lot of like kids programming or kids movies. It was once all of my younger sisters were born that like Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, uh, sort of all the Disney. The animated films really became popular in our household but you know for a few years there it was like here you get to watch robocop and terminator and predator <laughs> and all this stuff when yeah. i'm like five years old or younger yeah. so she's just like yeah let's have fun with that yeah i also watched robocop when i was quite young actually as well <laughs> so, yeah i just did I a, yeah. a guest spot on a podcast uh, from scotland talking about mm-hmm. robocop and that's uh in film we trust Oh, yeah, I've listened uh, to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I feel like I think we did an hour and a half. And ultimately, I was like, I feel like the real challenge was getting me to not talk about Robocop all day long. (laughs) So the fact that we trimmed it down to just over an hour and a half uh, was was a good job on their part to to keep me in check. But I want to ask you, since you listened to the the wishlist episode of Mm -hmm. this show and volunteered to do Drop Dead Fred. So Mm -hmm. I want to ask you. Well, firstly, what do you think people would point to as to why this would be considered a bad movie? I mean, its ratings are pretty low. It's got like a 25 Metascore. I mean, IMDb user rating is not too bad at 
5.9, but it still only has like 31,000 mm-hmm. reviews. And in comparison to a lot of films that I've watched uh, or that I've covered on this show, I've seen, you know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of people have taken the time to give it a rating. So I don't know if just maybe the curve has moved away from IMDb in favor of Letterboxd a little bit more, mm-hmm. but 31,000 still seems like a fairly small sample size. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think to a degree, I'd say it's not a not the people who the people who the film was maybe geared towards haven't seen it. Uh, I think that the tone is definitely all over the place. I think, I mean, I like that about it, but it's also like kind of weird. Um, it's sub Tim Burton to a certain degree. A lot of the kind of stuff near the end is very Beetlejuice and, but like cheap. <laughs> and, and I think, and I think like, you know, again, Rick mail isn't a known quantity to you. Uh, I think you would be like, who is this guy? He's terrifying. He's scary. Or he's, you know, creepy or he's pervy or, or you know, he, he he does a lot of things in the film that would be considered quite problematic, I think. Yeah. Um, so and, and then you've got Phoebe Cates, who's just like very sweet in the film. And it's got this sort of like saccharine kind of vibe to it. And then you've got the kind of the dark elements that are sort of off putting and a little bit disturbing. I know you had return to oz on your list as well and i think that that's a similar thing where people are <laughs> expecting you know they're expecting the wizard of oz and they're getting you know a woman taking her head off and those crazy wheelie guys and stuff like that so i, I it's kind of scary <laughs> maybe there's um, something of a trend on my list <laughs> yeah yeah uh so i think drop dead fred has that element of like it's maybe a little too weird but not like crazy enough or something like that yeah where it's it's like maybe they're trying to be a family film but it's not a family film obviously not not for most families i would say but it seems to work well for my family for my family exactly (laughs) yeah uh but bb kate's at the time that she did this, she was sort of like, you know, a cinema darling to some (laughs) degree, but then, you know, she had done the first two gremlins movies. Um, and she did, I love you to death also right before drop dead Fred. And then Mm. drop dead Fred comes along, uh, and that kind of torpedoed her career at that point. Mm. And like, I think it's a little (laughs) bit unfair because it's not even like she's bad in this movie at all. No, it's just the, the reception of the movie, maybe, uh, pushed her out of the realm of like you're no longer in contention for America's sweetheart kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean I do, I remember seeing Gremlins and stuff when I was younger, and Phoebe Gates was obviously a a name that people knew. So I didn't realize it came at kind of that point in her career where maybe she could carry a movie by herself. Mm. Um, but she doesn't have any like really great. I mean, all of her scenes are sort of stolen by. Rick Mail, obviously, who's just doing his thing. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, that sucks for her, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's a little, I don't know a little movies... bit unfair. Sometimes I find it, uh, it's weird that like one movie can destroy an actor's career unless it's like a total massive flop. And, <laughs> but like this film, like nobody just saw it. Nobody saw it. So it could just disappear. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, she could make another few movies. It had. It, well, it boasts a whopping 11% on the tomato meter. So really, that's crazy, really bad <laughs> on the tomato meter. But the audience score is a 77. So I think kind of the same thing where it was yeah. really frowned upon by critics and film writers. But the people that actually saw it, for the most part, liked it. And mm-hmm. I think part of that is because 
as you mentioned, it's so strange. It also has a really fantastic cast and some really yeah. strong performances as well. But um, since you had the VHS version, yeah, was this was this a movie that uh, in Ireland had any kind of footprint? Was there like any advertising or any sort of awareness for this film? Because this wasn't a movie that I knew about until it was available on home video as well. Yeah, I don't I don't remember the film coming out in the cinema or anything like that. I mean, my the first film I saw was Batman, which was like in Ireland probably came out in 1990, but it was a 1989 film. Um, I don't remember Dropped It Fred in the, in the theaters or anything like that or anybody ever talking about it. I just remember seeing it in the video store and seeing Rick Mail's face and being like, oh, we like Rick Mail. So you go and you pick up a Rick Mail movie because you don't see him in a lot of American movies before or after. Uh, so <laughs> yeah 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 so this was like the one chance really and i had read too that um initially <clears throat> that carlos davis and anthony fingleton who were writers on this uh, had wanted to set it in the uk somewhere but rick mayall mm. was trying to break into sort of uh like international and american cinema so he wanted to right? yeah push it away from that mm. and do something that was a little bit more american but Maybe at the time, like specifically that style of humor was a little bit too intense, where I think if you look back on it now, it doesn't really feel like it's this crazy thing that is completely not from this world. But mm. as we had talked about a little bit, it doesn't really line up with the other kinds of sort of family films of, I guess, something that would maybe be fairly close to the timing and the general tone would be something like uh mrs doubtfire yeah for sure but, but that has the benefit of having robin williams and having this sort of like very heartfelt story attached to it but also being a little bit zany but it still operates sort of within the the comedic uh, lanes that robin williams had already established for himself and that people were familiar with so it didn't become uh this completely bonkers thing that it could have been had you gone in a different direction with the actor or with the writers perhaps mm. yeah i mean i i think actually i think the is, is the little girl that's in the movie the same little girl in um mrs doubtfire ashley peldon i don't think so although no? she is oh, i she thought is it was her i just great. thought in this movie yeah. in particular. Yeah. She's I good. Think it, I don't think it was her. But. I thought it was just just because I'd seen a bit of uh, Mrs. Doubtfire recently. So I was like, is that the same girl? It's the only <laughs> thing I've ever seen her in is this. But yeah. it's still at this same point haircut. one <laughs> one of my favorite uh, child performances in all of mm. cinema. Just because she gets to like have fun and curse yeah, and yeah. sort of like be a very... Um, antithetical character to the stuff that we see in american cinema for kids like for the most part Definitely. there was stuff like lost boys and you know the the goonies mm. and stuff where it's like they allowed these characters to have more sort of adult oriented storylines and they get into a little bit of that or uh when shane black did monster squad like that's a little bit oh, more yeah, adult even though <laughs> yeah i love that movie too yeah. <laughs> even though that's really like a story about kids like this in i mean ashley pelden couldn't have been older than like seven or eight years old in this yeah and within the first few minutes she's cursing and she's just like laughing and having a great time so i've always really felt that she was a big part of the reason that this movie was so endearing for me. And maybe it's because I had little sisters too, that were, you know, mm. little troublemakers as well. So. Yeah, 
I think I think those scenes are the this, those scenes with the with her are the ones I remember the most from when I was a younger person, just a kid causing chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's she's I'm sure Rick Mail encouraged her to go full belt as well. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what when I looked on it when I looked at it again years later, I was surprised how few of those scenes there are with her. Because uh, for me, I thought it was like a lot of the movie was the, the kind of flashbacks and stuff like that, and then. You know, you remember movies in your head a different way, um, but I think the the way the film is shot is kind of funny as well because it's it's shot like a bland sort of yeah. uh, American feel good family movie, and it's not. I, I you saying it might have been set in England actually makes a lot more sense to me because it does have that kind of darker vibe to it that maybe a different director would have done some interesting things. But I think the director did want to put darker stuff in there, but yeah. Yeah, for me, it feels like it's caught between wanting to really be a sort of no holds barred rated R comedy that surrounds this concept. And then also being like, well, we have Phoebe Cates, who's America's sweetheart. And this is also, Mm -hmm. you know, we have like a six, seven year old girl here who is going to be one of the primary characters as well. We can't really have it be as unencumbered as we would ultimately like it to be. And part of me like after my the most recent time i watched it i was like damn i really want like a rated r director's cut of this film to see what this movie would have been like had it sort of been actualized to its fullest potential and Mm -hmm. to see if that today would still be as i guess frowned upon as this movie was uh you know 30 years ago at this point yeah and i think a lot of the a lot of the kind of subtext is something that we've kind of brought to it. And in recent, you know, as you watch it, when you get older, it changes a little bit. Um, And that's kind of what happens in the film too. She sees, she sees Fred differently and she kind of, it, she, she views what he does differently and stuff like that. Um, But yeah, I, I do wonder, I mean, they were always talking about a remake, but I just, I don't see them being able to sort of make a, I guess you could make a good film out of it. I don't know what, <laughs> There was that Wilfred TV show. I don't know if you ever saw that TV show. And it was yeah. kind of a similar thing. He's a dog. Yeah, and, I watched like uh, the first season. It's pretty dark. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't want them to remake it and like lose the thing that makes this movie special. Like you could take mm. the general idea and kind of try to make it more serious and maybe get the tone to line up a little bit more closely so it's not. Uh, I guess pitchy would be the right word where it's not, Oh, Hey, it's, it's a goofy like kids movie for like little kids. And then, Oh, it's like a very dark adult comedy. And then trying to find the balance of that enough along the way. I I kind of like it at being disjointed and having these like two different identities because that's kind of what the movie is about in the first place. And so if you eliminate those two polar opposites and how the film is told, it really sort of does a disservice to like what's actually happening in the story. So I don't know that I would want to see it remade, but I mean, I would watch it for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'd be interested in seeing, you know, who, who could, who could take over the Rick mail role that wouldn't just be like a imitation. Um, it'd be kind of tough to do it. Maybe, a maybe they'd switch gender or something and they get like a female comic, like a Melissa, Melissa McCarthy or someone like that. Maybe, 10 years ago would have been, you know, better, but I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Not to to get into like a, you know, funnier, uh, or sorry, not to get into a 
whole tangent about remakes and stuff like that. But yeah. We'll do that on a different episode of this show. Yeah, I know I put yeah. I put some movies on the wish list that are like remakes that people hated, but mostly because the original is so beloved that like the idea of remaking it is blasphemous in itself. So yes, yeah. I, I would like to sort of like maybe tackle one or two of those and see how that goes, but that's for another mm-hmm. time. Uh for now, I'm gonna go back and take a look at this trailer, which I think we're looking at the the remastered trailer. Maybe not. Let me see. Oh, no, this is not the the remastered trailer at all. This is the original New Line trailer uh, from 1991. Before we get to the trailer, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor. If you go to the movies, even on a semi-regular basis, you may have noticed that runtimes have crept way up. Even your standard action movie is clocking in at over two hours more often than not these days. Well, the good news is that you don't need to worry about missing a moment of the action anymore thanks to Namby Pamby's super-absorbent adult diapers. These ultra-low-profile protective undergarments replace your everyday underwear with space-age material designed for astronauts, so it's very functional where you need it the most, and their odor control technology means that you can feel free to go, and nobody will know. Namby Pamby's also come in hand for long road trips or late-night podcast editing marathons. I could be wearing one right now, but even if I was, you wouldn't be able to tell. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the go with Namby Pamby's super absorbent adult diapers. And now back to the show. You see that okay? Yep. Right, Honey, why'd you call him Drop Dead Fred? Because that's his name, Daddy. Like many small children, Lizzie had an imaginary playmate. Drop Dead Fred <laughs> is going to teach me how to cook today. Someone she could talk to. Sugar? Yeah. <gasps> Someone she could share with. Oh, Grandma Bun! <laughs> Someone who would never let her down. No more drop dead Fred. Period. Now Lizzie is all grown up. To us. And when her perfect life us. fell apart. Charles, I lost my money, my car, my husband. She didn't get mad. Drop dead Fred. She got Fred. Ah! <laughs> What, who dropped dead? Circus music. Everybody has strange friends, even you must. But all mine are alive. That's not saying much. <laughs> it's no wonder Charles left you. <laughs> Haven't got a husband, got a stupid haircut. You see, you just don't know how to make a marriage. Work. Yeah, this music is wild though. It's uh, the second No, oh, there we go. <laughs> He's back and he's a pervert. Yeah. To show her, no matter how bad oh, things Mikey. look now, <laughs> they can always get infinitely worse. Drop dead Fred was way out of control. Have I got him? Forget <laughs> little man. There's nobody there. It's Carrie Fisher is great in this. She is, yeah. I read that she auditioned for Elizabeth, but they thought she was too old for the role, so they wrote her in for oh, really? the friend yeah that'd be interesting well, what does that taste like every child should <laughs> have one especially when she grows up <laughs> there's a lot of physical humor there's a lot of sort of mm-hmm. like inappropriate humor uh but that's definitely what makes uh oh, 
Did I lose you? Hey. And we're back. Oh, sorry. Do you, do, I don't know what happened there. I I don't know. I was like, oh, he's not here anymore. So <laughs> I, think, uh, <laughs> I think maybe we had like a very quick power surge. Oh. Because uh, everything just flicked. Sorry about that. Uh, that's okay. But in watching that trailer, like we had talked about a little bit earlier, like who is this geared towards like the music yeah. is very much like a circus kind of vibe uh but you have such a good cast in this movie with uh phoebe cates i mean marcia mason is great as her mom tim yeah. matheson She's good. as well uh even ron Eldred, who plays the boyfriend uh, has gone on to do quite a lot like i mentioned uh, carrie fisher as well so you really have like a good cast that gives good performances so i think like they're on board with the idea, but I mean, yeah, who was when you see that trailer, who's supposed to go see that movie? I feel I feel like it is geared towards kids a little bit. I don't know. I mean, I guess like maybe like teenage girls or something. I, I maybe that's the kind of because it gave me that kind of Tim Burton Beetlejuice, you know, vibe, yeah. definitely. And um, there's some of that in the film too. I don't know if that's the studio maybe afterwards thinking this is the crowd we're going to gear towards. So we're going to make things like that. Um, but yeah, it's a tough one. I, I think it's geared towards like a lot of maybe different types, but not one specific. It's definitely not geared towards like teenage boys or whatever, you know, like a, like a superhero movie or something like that. Um, and it's in the nineties. So it's, it's definitely selling itself almost like a quirky comedy really which i think is fair i mean it is a quirky comedy it's just yeah that tone is weird and i had a friend who he was watching it because we have some other friends seth and michelle who run movie friends and they were doing Mm -hmm. like their sub series of uh like i don't know super awesome movies whatever and they had a friend come on and do drop dead fred which i uh sort of provided like a small audio sample of why i love that movie but then our other mutual friend was asking a lot of these questions like, who is this for? Like, why is he such a disgusting pervert? Uh, like all of the all of these like <laughs> technical questions where I guess if you're watching it for the first time now, it seems very, very strange. Whereas growing up with it and then watching it multiple times from childhood through adulthood, I was sort of able to piece together the the underlying connective tissue that maybe isn't there on the surface because it is jarring. If you don't know who Rick Mayall mm-hmm. is, you've never seen him before and you're watching it for the first time, like as an adult, then I could understand you being very weirded out by what the tone of this movie is. But I think, as I mentioned in seeing that you've got a Carrie Fisher who plays her, her friend and sort of like a surrogate mom figure for her mm-hmm. in this way. And you've got Tim Matheson who plays the shitty cheating husband. And then Marsha Mason who plays the controlling mother figure. I actually, I mean, this is going to be a comparison that probably pisses a lot of people off, but I feel like this is sort of a, a funnier version of Carrie in that it focuses very strongly on the relationship between this abusive mother and what that abuse does to her daughter. And in this case, her daughter's like superpower is maybe having this like personality disorder that allows the like Fred to be part of her life. But Mm -hmm. 
I think it is very much a commentary on this abusive maternal relationship and uh, her father in this, uh, Daniel Garrel, uh, played Nigel. I mean, he's really not in the movie that much, but he uh, is the one between the two parents who is sort of trying to be nice about Fred and he wants his daughter to be able to like have fun and have an imaginary friend and like not be overly serious about it. But he is also British in the film. So (laughs) when the design of drop dead Fred's character comes into play, he is this guardian, this father figure for um, Elizabeth. And the first thing I think she says about him in the movie as an adult is that he always looked out for me. And yeah. so we we run into her first as an adult in this movie where she gets treated like a, a, a doormat. Basically, she gets her purse mm. stole. She gets her purse taken from her. Then she gets her car stolen. Then she gets fired <laughs> and her husband leaves yeah. her. So like within the first few minutes of the film, she's at rock bottom as an adult. Yeah, she's having a bad day. She's having a very, very bad day. And that sort of opens the door for her controlling mom to come in and get her hooks in again and be like, "Okay, well, now Mm -hmm. you need me. And because you need me, I'm going to start telling you sort of what to do. And her mother has a lot of these ideas of like what it means to be uh, a proper kind of woman in this. And so she wants to imbue that onto her daughter. But her daughter still sort of blames her mom for the dad leaving but then the mom blames her for the dad leaving and so it's Mm -hmm. this weird very toxic relationship uh between her and her mother but that is at the center of why drop dead fred exists in the first place and so i think if you can latch onto that earlier in the film and sort of accept this as an allegory about abuse and about uh not comfort but um what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, I don't know. I'll figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> a coping mechanism. Thank you. I'll coping edit out all that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if you can buy into this as like Fred being a coping mechanism for her trying to deal with her childhood trauma, I think it becomes a little bit easier to swallow. And like in 1991, therapy was still sort of this thing that was not really accepted on Mm -hmm. a a wide level by the public. I mean, access was difficult, but I mean, one of the better things to come out of COVID, although there hasn't been much, but it has been that people were able to find time to like prioritize their own mental health needs. And so like prioritizing mental health isn't the same thing as like struggling with mental illness. Like there is it's not just black and white like that. And I think in a case like this, you have this story about this young woman whose mental health has been jeopardized by her mother. And that response is that she basically has an alter ego. And so it's like dissociative personality disorder. And they don't really like get into it too much. Cause I don't think like the public knowledge of it was enough to really sort of get into the details of it in a way that would make for a, meaningful delivery in this film it sort of Mm -hmm. had to treat it like this magical thing where fred like is he real is he not real but then you see many times throughout the course of the film that you know when she starts taking these uh pills from the psychiatrist that it actually affects him so i think there are clear indicators that he is just a figment of her imagination so for me 
it's not like, oh, he's just this genie in a jack in the box that pops up and solves problems for her. He is a part of her personality, which I guess would be the id. He's that part yeah, of her personality sure. that looks out for her, stands up for her, fights back for her when she's uh, victimized uh, emotionally or physically. And he also he also does what she wants to do. I mean, she wants to get her husband back mm-hmm. and he's wants to help her. I mean, he that's what he's doing for most of the movie. He's trying to help her do the things that she wants to do. And I think it's interesting. I think if that trailer had been made today, you might show more of the relationship between the mom and the daughter. Mm-hmm. And you might that might be the kind of central. That is the central point of the film. I think I agree with you. Mm-hmm. But um, I think you would be put that out there a little bit more, particularly the mental health stuff and mental health and children, especially. I mean, dealing with kind of kids on the spectrum and kids, you know, that stuff was not really, they just, I know giving drugs to kids was, is like a major kind of a issue a lot of the times. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's necessary and sometimes it's used just as a way of kind of keeping the kid, you know, relaxed or whatever. Um, and I think that that's stuff that wasn't talked about very often back then. And I think this was definitely a film that wanted to kind of, I mean, it does deal with those things. It does deal with the uh, idea of kids with mental health issues and uh, giving kids drugs that don't really solve the issues at all because the issues are emotional and traumatic. Um, and I think you you said something that I wanted to point out also, which was that the mom is a really interesting character in terms of she only has one way of being a mother. She doesn't really understand any other ways of being a mother. And she's trying to t- turn her daughter into the same thing. And the film does a really good job of at, at near the end of the movie, you know, when they have they have it out and they have a falling out and she kind of is about to leave, but she comes back and hugs her. And I really like that moment where it's, she understands that her mother doesn't have the capacity to understand what's going on with her. And she does, she kind of is also traumatized herself probably. And I think the father gets off pretty scot-free in this film, which is good. I mean, he gets arrested. I mean, he just leaves. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he gets arrested at one point. Yeah, then he leaves, he, yeah. just, <laughs> he just leaves and never contacts his daughter again, even as an adult, which I think is, you know, a questionable thing <laughs> to a certain degree. For sure. You know, within the context of the film. Yeah. yeah, I also think that there's sort of a, a dismissive kind of understanding of like a child's capacity. So mm-hmm. in the 90s, especially, there was this thing where you're not like this mother character doesn't even like ha- like you say, she doesn't have the capacity. There's zero understanding on her part that her sort of behavior in this is negatively affecting her child and she argues mm-hmm. with her husband a lot and there was this kind of like mentality around like oh she's just a kid like she'll get over it or like they don't really know what's going on but kids are very very adept at picking up on stuff like that yeah. and your your brain is learning at a much faster rate when you're younger so this i think this movie actually shows uh pretty well that this young girl is sort of like passively learning about what's going on in her parents' relationship without necessarily ever confronting them. Like you'll see in movies now where um, child characters will be portrayed as like having a hard time at school because their parents are getting divorced. And like, that's Mm -hmm. way more on the front foot now than it ever used to be. And so a similar backstory is happening here where these two parents are like struggling to coexist. They have very different, uh, different Mm -hmm. parenting styles and they treat their daughter very differently. 
And we don't see how any of this plays out with uh, the daughter as a child, like in her existence as a child. We see Drop Dead Fred, but it's like she's never at school having a tough time with it. She's never like in the counselor's office having a tough time with it. So the portrayal of like that whole kind of storytelling is much, much different now uh, than it used to be. And I think in the 90s, I mean, we're starting to get to the point where. I guess divorce was more common and you would see it in media more often. But now we're at the point where divorce and issues with your parents are like almost necessary to any story you're going to tell about uh, a kid in high school to some degree. I mean, I just saw Bottoms a couple of weeks ago, and that definitely has uh, oh, yeah, some, I see some issues with the, the those particular parents, although it's not like the story. Mm hmm. There, but there's also now there's a framework to understand yeah. parents and and kids have a framework to understand divorce and what happens to kids during divorce and what happens to everybody. And, you know, back then it was a little bit more people kind of feeling it out. People didn't talk about it a little bit more. I mean, where I'm from, people definitely didn't talk about it. Right. It was not something that it was like a shameful thing almost to to get a divorce or something like that. So, um I mean, divorce wasn't legalized in Ireland until uh, when was it? I was alive, so it was it was it was <laughs> like the nineties. Not it only like shameful, but outright illegal. It was literally illegal. Yeah, you could separate, but <laughs> you couldn't get divorced. Um, so I remember divorce getting legalized actually, um, and stuff like that wasn't talked about. You know, to stuff like what happens to the family. It would just be either the kids go with the mom or the kids go with the dad, and that's it. Um, but what that does to your kid, and especially if you have a child who's very in touch with their emotions or very, you know, aware of what's going on around them and seeing what, what are, how other people act. And I think it's interesting at the end of the film, when you see, uh, is it Mikey, is it her new partner? Um, uh, yeah. The, the Mikey, kinda, Mickey. Mickey. So, yeah. And Drop Dead Fred is with her, with his kid now. Yeah. And the indication is that she, there must be something going on there, too. That she did that his child is unhappy and she's acting out and she's doing the, he, also a child of divorce but mm -hmm. uh you know he's he's portrayed as a very nice character a very kind of perfect kind of bit dull but you know uh <laughs> you know super nice super nice guy and he's safe stuff like that he's a safe guy yeah and it's interesting because she meets him at the courthouse and he just got um custody of the, his daughter and it's like mm -hmm. well that's kind of rare, I guess, to have forever the father to get full custody. So something is going on in the background there that I'm kind of interested in knowing about. The sequel that we never got, but uh, yeah, the you sequel that we never got. Yeah, you had mentioned how um, Elizabeth hugs her mother because she understands that, like, by the time she's gotten to this point in the film and this point in the story, she understands that her mother just doesn't have the capacity for affection and that's something that mm -hmm. i pointed to a lot in my notes is that there is no affection and because of that elizabeth has very low self-esteem because her dad left and she's left with her mom who just doesn't love her in any kind of like active way and there's yeah. a line early on and i'm not sure if it was like the mud pie thing or if a little bit before that where she tells her oh i think she was like tucking her into bed and uh she rejects her daughter's advance for physical affection. She says cuddling mm -hmm. is for teddy bears. So for that to come yeah. full circle and for her to then sort of like throw that out the window and be like, I'm going to hug you anyway, because 
I I do have the capacity to care and I'm going to mm-hmm. show you that I care and I'm going to do it in a way that has this physical embrace that uh, Elizabeth's character has been lacking for all this time. So I really like that it comes full circle in that way. And, you know, that whole end of the film is like it's not a coincidence that this all ends up back in her childhood home. It's like this nightmare vision of her home and her childhood self is literally like bound and strapped to the bed and she has to do the work of breaking this child free of those bonds so i think like having seen it multiple times going into the most recent time i had seen it it's very it's much more clear to me that this is really a story about like allowing her her inner child to heal and to be free and to be the person that she wants to be without it having to come with these particular caveats in order to like have her mother's affection. And she's always, um, yeah, for sure. She's always like blaming herself as well. She's, uh, and that's, you know, she has to forgive herself before she can kind of mm-hmm. work on any, any other kind of relationship. I mean, her interactions with her husband or fiance husband, right? Yeah. I think it is her husband. Yeah, um, are just, you know, she will just forgive him anything. I mean, there's, and she's just a total doormat for him. And he just completely takes advantage of that. And the mother supports that too. She, they are, they kind of team up together at some point and to get her back into the child psychologist's uh, office. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's the film is saying, you know, you have to kind of heal yourself before you can kind of move on in your life and and, and help with other people or, forgive other people even you can't hold you'll, you'll hold on to the anger and the resentment and that's what she's doing in the film she doesn't like her mother she kind of hates her mother um but it's only at the end of the film where she decides to maybe stop being angry with her and like let her go a little bit so she has to find some friends obviously maybe a drop yeah. dead friend <laughs> yeah and like you had said like her self-esteem like basically just doesn't exist um mm-hmm. she's a doormat i mean her she's even dressed almost like a doll like a yeah, sort of like yeah. like one of those collectors doll like... that like you sit on the shelf she has like sort of like the lace thing around like the the collar and it's just yeah. very it's all long sleeve it's all the way down to the floor so she's like dressed <laughs> in a in a very very particular manner when girl, girl next door kind of uh yeah and she's but, surrounded she's surrounded by people who are not like that she's surrounded by her. carrie fisher is a you know a strong short hair mm-hmm. uh, suits heels lives, lives in a boathouse yeah she's having an affair with her <laughs> boss or <laughs> yeah it's just like whatever yeah i like but, that carrie fisher's character just totally accepts drop dead fred you know when when her friend tells her hey i see a man and he's he's chaotic and he does terrible things and she's like okay I believe you. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, that's a good friend. That's just oh, like no, she's a still fan- trying to help her. She's a fantastic friend in this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she sinks her good. she sinks her houseboat, and she's still like, okay, we're we're fine. Don't worry, I'll collect the insurance. <laughs> yeah. These things happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when she first sort of invades her invades her home because she doesn't have anywhere else to go. Carrie Fisher mm-hmm. is in the process of like having her one her one night of sex with this guy whose wife is out of town and so she like she she's like okay well i'm gonna not have sex for the one night a month that i'm able to get it in order to help you out here so yeah they they established very early on that she's a a very good friend and like you said she doesn't dismiss her when she says she has this 
uh, imaginary friend, she's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, like, let's figure this out. And she even like tries to fight Fred in some moments, yeah, and, yeah. you know, it, it, it yeah, makes for some joking. interesting, yeah, for some interesting comedy yeah. there. But I think it's important that like her only friend is actually a very good friend. It's not this person mm-hmm. that's dismissive of her. And then Mickey too, sort of is like willing to sort of entertain the idea. And he just is like, you're fun and you're crazy. And you're all the things that yeah. I liked from when you were a kid. So he's on board, but Elizabeth's own insecurity is so strong that when she, when she hits rock bottom, she's back in her mom's house. And then she like first opens the box where she sort of lets Fred out. The first thing that Fred says to her is like, you're older, you're older and you're uglier than you were. So it's like, (laughs) it's just reflecting all of the insecurities that she's had within herself this whole time that when her like her id is unleashed, the first thing is like, oh, well, like you're you're less than you used to be. So mm-hmm. she doesn't view herself with any value. And I think it just like it sets off the whole story from there because she's just like trying to inch her way back to like having some sense of self, some self value where she doesn't end up, you know, being treated like crap by Charles. But, mm-hmm. you know, Tim Matheson is actively cheating on her in the very beginning. Yeah. At, at the start, he, he never like is a openly. good husband to yeah. her. Yeah. So we never even see what's worth uh fighting for which only reinforces how low her self-esteem is yeah and it's only it's only when fred kind of sees for himself kind of what the husband is doing that he's he he does want her to stand up for herself i mean that's what he's trying to get her to do throughout the entire film with everybody is to just stand up for yourself tell them how you really feel even if how you really feel isn't gonna impress anybody or if they don't like it um and she, you know that's what he kind of gets her to do by the end of it. I, I find it interesting that her her imaginary friend is like a this kind of gross boy. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's like a young boy who's just like disgusting. You know, he's like yeah. makes lewd jokes and is like stupid and putting a snot everywhere. You know, he's just a gross boy, and 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 she's always been told to be a nice little girl. Um, so girls are supposed to be obedient and boys are supposed to be rebellious, and that's kind of how a lot of kids are that's the sort of gender divide and how kids are raised a lot of times um and i, I find it interesting that her her manifestation of uh you know her her strong side is this kind of boy character that or man character that will mm-hmm. you know take out the it's kind of in uh, opposition to the the female uh the the good little girl kind of vibe that she's got going on there yeah, because her mom is trying to put her in this box of like, you're a good little girl that behaves mm-hmm. and dresses nice. And like you hit all of these particular sort of like tent poles that make you grow up to be the woman that I want you to be kind of thing. And really, yeah, she wants to like be gross and like pick her nose and flick boogers. <laughs> and she wants to make <laughs> mud pies. And uh, yeah. the first thing she does when she's back at her mom's house is like Fred shows up and he goes outside and steps on a bunch of dog shit and then the dog uh, shit scene (laughs) so disgusting (laughs) but when she walks into the house her mom is like okay well you can your room's upstairs just the way you left it and then don't go into the living room like i just had the carpets clean it's all very white very sterile and it's just this very 
visual example of her mother's kind of like sterile control. And so mm-hmm. it's not a coincidence that the very first thing that happens is she's not only making a mess, but she's literally smearing shit all over the rug. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then her, like her mom's face in the morning is so great though. She's like, why Elizabeth? <laughs> I just love Fred coming in with, on a handstand. Yeah. Like he's not going to get in the hallway, but he's going to wait till he gets into the room so he can get the most onto the couches and the, and the, and the floor and everything. And he's like on the couch. I remember just being grossed out by that a lot. Yeah. And the, the snot stuff, which is what my sister used to do to me after we saw this movie, she was, uh, she was inspired by Fred that she would do that. She would pick her nose and then smear it on my face or try to anyway. I mean, she yeah. loves you. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think she still tries to do it sometimes you know? <laughs> uh well and reading about the blu-ray anniversary there was a lot of i guess deleted scenes that were like worse mm-hmm. than that where i guess like he like spits on her face or like on her head or I something could, I, yeah so i, I want to see when that I, blu-ray with that i could have sworn when i watched a movie there was there was a description of one scene that was uh he picked his nose and he flicks it into her cup of coffee or something i was like <laughs> i could have sworn i saw that scene I was like, maybe I got like a different version of it or something. I don't know. But I yeah. Sometimes they have like weird different versions in different territories and stuff like that where certain things are included and certain things aren't. Yeah. I think when I'm done with this, I'm gonna have to see if I can find that Blu-ray uh for yeah. a reasonable price and then spoil yeah. myself with that. But uh how do you feel about doing a little bit of trivia? I know we talked about a couple sure. of these things, but um why not? Let's do some trivia. <laughs> Time for trivia. Okay. So question number one, who was director Ate de Jong's first choice to play Elizabeth? Oh, hmm. 1990. Let's see. Was it like Winona Ryder or something? It like was Winona Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> there you go bingo yeah. there's the beetlejuice stuff again yeah. exactly uh yeah. yeah i guess like you know she had done heathers and beetlejuice <laughs> and something mm-hmm. else around that time too that i can't quite put my finger on but she sort of had that vibe and then mm-hmm. i guess when she auditioned they thought she was too young so uh oh, okay. i think her agent ended up passing on it but she did mm-hmm. audition for the role so oh, oddly enough yes winona Ryder. Yeah. uh Question number two, you might know this one. Which Batman director was originally offered the script but declined? Oh, yeah, that was that was Tim Burton. That was Tim yeah. Burton. This does have very Tim Burton. Also has a little bit of like Danny Elfman energy to it as well. In especially the music in, in the trailer. Music. Yeah. 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 I don't it was not Danny Elfman that ultimately did the music for this. Um I don't have it pulled up right now, but Randy Edelman. Okay. Yeah. So not Danny Elfman, but it also has some uh, Randy Newman vibes at times, too. So mm-hmm. I can see that if you're watching a movie and you're relying on some of the musical cues or the score to sort of tell you how you're supposed to feel or sort of nudge you in that direction. Like this movie is all over the map with that. So you never yeah. know how you're supposed to feel uh, <laughs> based on the music. You're like, uh, I, I don't, am I supposed to be yeah. laughing here? Is this, this is very traumatizing. Should I, that's a classic um, I enjoy studio it? fix as well, <laughs> isn't it? To like, Mm. to put like random music and edits into into the movie to try and fix the end and stuff like that 
They're like, maybe if we punch it up with enough of this music, we can sell it as yeah. a kid's movie. It's jaunty. And then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect word for it. Uh, and the third and final question we're going to get to is, in which American city does Drop Dead Fred actually take place? Oh, that I don't know, actually. I'm Chicago? Close. It's in Minnesota. So they oh, okay. chose something that's kind of like in that Midwest. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's like still Rust Belt. And they wanted it because it wasn't identifiable in a way that New York or San Francisco or L.A. was. So it mm-hmm. had the vibe of just like an everyday American kind of city. So that like, yeah, it just implies that like this story that as crazy as it is is probably happening to a lot more kids than you're willing to acknowledge Mm -hmm. and it is something that's a lot more american than you may be willing to acknowledge as well and so i've talked you know i did that episode on robocop and we've talked uh in film club also about like a movie like uh three billboards where you have a i think it's a british filmmaker coming in doing uh an american movie and robocop you have verhoven who's dutch and i think uh de jong is uh dutch as well and so it's like the value of something like outsider art and how difficult it is to sort of navigate that because like you mentioned in the UK or uh, in Ireland, divorce wasn't legalized until the 90s. So it's this thing that's very taboo. Uh, it's mm-hmm. legal in the US in the 90s, but like you're coming out of the 80s where you're having a lot of films that are portraying like the nuclear family, maybe troubled, mm-hmm. maybe not, but you're still like relying on that framework. And so it to, definitely wasn't it definitely wasn't normalized as exactly. divorce, I think, anywhere really at that point. So to have a a Dutch filmmaker come in and then to not just like tell this story with a a fairly well-known, famous uh, British comedian and then to set it in like an everyday America and have this be this very American story, I think for me works very well. But I could understand definitely having some resistance to why why this story is happening seemingly ahead of its time because now 30 years down the line when you talk about things like uh personality disorders or uh dissociative identity disorder like that's almost what's going on here with her character so like the language wasn't there to support it i don't think Mm -hmm. the the footprint in the public eye was there to really support this film being successful but interesting that it's a a dutch filmmaker coming in telling the story and then 30 years later seeing that like hey this is actually pretty accurate (laughs) uh if you're willing to give it credit it happens with a lot of like verhoeven movies doesn't it where where he brings that kind of energy to it where there's something else going on underneath and it, it takes a few years for it to be kind of understood i mean showgirls is the obvious one but yeah um starship troopers Troopers is the other one yeah very yeah. much so. Where when you first watch it, you're like, what is this? Is just an alien action movie. And then you kind of get the subtext a little bit more. So, yeah, for when I was watching the movie, I just thought it was the American suburbs. That's, you know, that's, that's what it was to me. It was just some nice, you know, middle class place in America. Didn't really matter where, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess um, like a good comparison would be like um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? Like, yeah, he's, yeah. he's coming from a well-off family. Like he's got, you know, the latest technology in his room. Uh, he's they've 
got a nice house in a nice neighborhood yet he's like rebelling just for the sake of rebelling as a teenager whereas mm-hmm. like this film is like this young girl has her sort of like family structure torn apart at a very young age and then she has her only friend the only person that really uh stands up for her sort of like getting locked away and then she is just like sort of like stamped and rolled out by her mother into the world as like what her mom thinks she's supposed to be, but she's Mm -hmm. not happy. She's got no self-esteem. And so when we finally meet her as an adult, it's like when all this stuff has come crashing down, like what really matters and it's her recovery of herself. That is really where the story is. It's not really about Fred. He's like I said, he's not a genie, despite coming mm-hmm. out of the jack in the box. There really isn't any magic happening here. It's just like that voice in your head telling you to really like, OK, turn the corner, stand up for yourself, sort of get your life back. It is it is kind of like a coming of age film, except that she's yeah. coming of age as an as an adult. I mean, her her mom has been kind of put her in this box her entire life as as you said and that's what she's kind of trying to free herself from is that she's which does happen to people i mean they're you know they spend their lives their parents are kind of running their lives or they they make decisions based on what other people tell them and that's that's kind of what elizabeth has to do in the movie is she has to sort of stand up for herself and she has to become an adult and let go of you know not just childhood stuff good stuff that she likes like fred but also like childhood trauma and childhood, you know, relationships with her parents and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think uh, also Fred in the way that he reacts to Charles, we, she tries to sort of like contextualize why she loves Charles and like, she doesn't really have Mm. an answer for that. And so Fred, she's supposed to exactly. And so like Fred is very much aware of that, which is why he doesn't like Charles, but, He says to Elizabeth very early on, like, I can't leave until you're happy. So it it seems like, okay, he's a genie. He's supposed to, like, grant her three wishes to make her happy. But really, it's like, no, this is a part of yourself that that will not be quiet until you're actually doing the things that make you happy. And so it's as weird as Fred is, he's really there to like ensure that she's okay. And that she Mm -hmm. is being the version of herself that makes her happy because he's just reintroduced to her. Like, Oh wow. You grew up and like you, like all of your decisions you hate, you have no self esteem. (laughs) Like you're just learning from me. Yeah. You're just becoming another little mega beast as he says. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the first time he says that he calls her a mega bitch, he calls the mom a mega bitch. I remember that's like disconcerting. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. They were probably allowed to. She's a mega bitch in the film. Yeah. I wanted to ask you though, like had Phoebe Cates played both roles, like if she were herself, but then also like the drop dead Fred version of herself, like, is that an easier pill? Like, it's way more laid out for you as the audience that way. Like, there's a very clear correlation that, like, this yeah. is her, this is her other personality. And I think, like, she's capable of playing both. But I think if it were shown like that, you could have almost the exact same movie and it would be way easier for people to sort of, like, get on board with what the core concept of the film is. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, because I think I think the film, for me, Fred is... Uh, an entity he is like a he's not just a figment of our imagination he does kind of exist he's sort of like a he's that's what i was going to say he's like a quantum leap yeah ever watch that quantum leap show he's got to go and fix something before he can leave it's kind of like that and then when they go to the child psychologist office you've got these other 
threads. Mm-hmm. You've got these other great characters, and one of the one of them is terrifying looking. Um, but they exist for other kids as well. Um, so he's clearly they do exist within the universe as as their own entities a little bit, and they're maybe assigned. They assign themselves to these unhappy kids. Um, but it also works in the sense that she he is a figment of her imagination. He's making her do things that she wants to do but doesn't really want to do. She is his, she is his, uh, he is her aid, I guess, to a certain degree. Mm. Um, so the film does do kind of play it both ways. And you might be right that it would have been better to just do one or the other. Um, yeah. I mean, I kind of also like, like that. That's what makes yeah. it weird. Yeah. Yeah. I like that frenetic energy to it. And I think like when you have a guy like Rick Mayo, like you want his physical comedy, you want sort of mm-hmm. his uh, his dry delivery on some of the jokes. You want his personality to be part of this film. And it is a big part of the reason why the film is enjoyable is because watching him just be a weirdo is enjoyable and like phoebe cates basically is like very uh narrowly scoped in this movie where yeah she just has to be there to like be the sounding board for fred's weirdness and for her mom's bitchiness and for charles's disgustingness and it's, for, it's even a bit carrie fisher is kind of weird carrie, carrie fisher when she's smoking and jogging at the same mm-hmm. time it's like hold on hold on hold on the endorphins <laughs> are gonna kick having in. the time of her life yeah <laughs> <laughs> Best very very life. 90s too to where like oh i can smoke a pack a day yeah. but as long as i jog i'm still healthy <laughs> yeah. yeah she's living the high life yeah <laughs> uh but you're you're right that phoebe kate it's a bit of a thankless role i think i maybe maybe they would have punched it up a little if it was someone like winona Ryder because you know she's got that kind of more weird brand that to her um it, but yeah she pretty much has to just kind of sit there and while Rick Mail kind of does all of his stuff. Uh, so it, it was probably a difficult role to kind of play a little bit because it's so straight. Yeah. And I think when we see her and Mickey, when they go out to lunch and they're in that building mm. that like overlooks the city and she's the Fred is there and they're doing the whole like Fred is inserting himself into their lunch he's like physically Mm -hmm. manipulating her body but they have to shoot this with both that happening and then without fred in the scene as Mm -hmm. well and so i think you really get a good look at how strong of a physical comedian phoebe cates could be given Mm -hmm. the opportunity because that scene is hilarious it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie just throws her plate across the restaurant she like pours her drink in her lap she's playing peekaboo with the napkin as they showed us in the trailer i think she's capable of the sort of performance being like that outlandish at times but yeah she's really restrained for the most part because she has to be in order to allow everybody else to be as like colorful and ridiculous Mm -hmm. as they need to be in this story you kind of wish that she had more to she took more pleasure in what she was doing at some points or something like that. Like as a kid, you know, when they made the mud pie, she loves the mud pie and she makes yeah. another mud pie at the end of the movie, which is insane that he even see <laughs> <laughs> it's like if your if your wife presented you a mud pie and it's spraying hot mud onto your pants <laughs> and he's just like, Oh yeah, make a salad. I gotta right. go make a phone call. Like it's like nothing is wrong or something. <laughs> and then she says, "Okay, okay I'm gonna make a nice romantic yeah, dinner like, salad." I was like, "Romantic yeah. dinner salad." I feel like the evening's ruined. And maybe you know, <laughs> you can't save you can't save this with salad. <laughs> yeah, 
desperately making it you know yeah uh but yeah charles his character who's played you know very smarmy but excellently Mm. by tim matheson uh he's he's very good in this and Mm. his character is i mean disgusting on multiple levels like he treats her like crap he's cheating on her when we first meet him uh like I think because she goes into the courtroom, she's like, yeah, I lost my husband and my car and my purse. So within the first couple of minutes, like we already know that their relationship is on the outs. And then it's Mm -hmm. her mom that's like trying to reel him back in and sort of promise her that like, no, she's the good girl. She's going to do what I say. And he I think they run into each other sort of at that like benefit event uh, where she goes with Fred and he's with Bridget Fonda and we go from one scene where he's with uh, Bridget and then the next scene he's telling her you need me to protect you from men like me even though he's doing the exact disgusting thing that makes him the kind of person that he's saying that he needs to protect her from yeah I don't I never quite got what his you know why he wants to go is it just to control that he he can control Elizabeth and that's it because it's you know it's not i don't know is it's a family rich or something <laughs> it's like i don't know what what keeps him in the, he could just cheat on her and then you know leave her i don't know what it is that keeps bringing him back that he wants to like control her like that um it's just some sort of weird you know horrific thing that you know a man will do i guess yeah <laughs> and he he has like a weird relationship with her mom so maybe there is some family yeah. money and it's kind of this thing of like oh if you take care of my daughter i'll take care of you kind of thing but mm. in a conversation with uh polly who is marcia mason that's elizabeth's mom she says to him she's just a child and charles says that he's an adult just the implication there of like i know my daughter is a child (laughs) and i'm still kind of like selling her off to this older man who is already having an affair like just super Mm. super gross and the way he calls her annabella is always just very weird yeah there's there's something very off about that character that's just Well, he rhymes it at one point, doesn't he? Annabella or something. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's Bridget Fonda's name. But like he says that when he's in this. Oh, moment. sorry. Yeah, he's in this moment with Phoebe Cates. And I'm like your fella Annabella. To... Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when he's trying to get her back on the phone. Yeah, he's such a yeah, he's such a yeah. scumbag. But Matheson plays that role uh, so damn well that it's really, mm. really tough to like. I mean, he's smarmy and he's gross, but he's excellent at it. So it's like it's a role yeah. that I like, but also that I don't. Those are those are typically like good performances. Yeah, they're, I mean they're fun. They're fun to play. I'm sure. Yeah, Marsha Mason sort of like I don't know reminds me of uh, was it Throw Mama from the Train? Is that the oh, one? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I've yeah. seen it a long time. Yeah, yeah. So you get this like this weird sort of like parental energy from both like her husband and her mom. And then, I mean, Fred's not trying to really like be a parent. Carrie Fisher's not trying to be a parent. They're like trying mm-hmm. to, they're trying to buoy her self reliance. And so, like, yes. that's yeah. what it is. You got these two characters on one side that are trying to lift her up and have her be her own person. I mean, you could throw Mickey in the mix as well. Although he's mm-hmm. just like, I've had a crush on you from ch- since childhood, yes. and basically, like, I don't care how crazy you are, or whatever. Yeah, I'm just here I, for Mickey the ride. sucks. I don't yeah. know. I just like, she can do better than Mickey. My God. She probably yeah. can and she might at some point, but like yes, yeah, yeah, he's so. like he's the safe guy in this equation. Yeah. You know, 
even though he's already divorced and has a child at like 20 something. And so there's a whole secondary backstory going on over there. But I just feel like this movie has a lot more to it uh, in terms of its depth and its substance than it gets credit for. But also it has all of sort of the slapstick kind of like funny elements that Mm -hmm. I actually really enjoy. And one of those is... um, I think like Fred is screwing with her in the mall and there's like a five piece, like small orchestra out there. There's like a violinist who Fred is messing with her (laughs) and Phoebe is like, she's trying to get Fred to stop and she's like just fed up with him and she approaches him, but it's really this violinist. And so you see the violinist who's just like terrified before Phoebe starts walloping her with the purse. (laughs) And it's like, this is kind of like a really scary moment for this one, uh, like background actor. Yeah. So like she has to really be afraid. And it's this moment where, Hey, like regardless of whether or not you have an imaginary friend, like you're being violent towards just random Mm. people in public, like this isn't a good thing, but the whole way that this is set up is done in a way that I think allows the audience to both experience uh, what it's like to be on the outside of it. And it's very subtle because for the most part, the way that all of the other characters that are like aware of Fred, but uh, not willing to indulge his existence, like her mom and Mm -hmm. uh, her husband. In this case, you get just like this random person at a mall that is like the victim of this uh, violent outburst from Mm -hmm. Elizabeth in this case. And that's not something that really like aligns with the, the tone that we've established from Fred or the tone that we've established Mm -hmm. from any of these other characters. So it's a very just like real moment all of a sudden in the middle of the movie where it's like, yeah, you're like losing your mind maybe. And you're fed up. Yeah. Things things are getting worse. Yeah. Things are getting really bad here. And then, you know, I think it culminates with the, the houseboat as well. Like the fact that she was confident enough to be like, Hey, you know what? I can drive this houseboat. And she just turns it on is like, let me, let me chase him in a, was he in a speedboat or something? And she just thought she was going to be able to run him down in this, uh, like old casino style houseboat. And Fred just wants to press the button. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just like a little kid. He's like, let me just do it. Yep. He's got no yeah. idea. So Sing that's sing. exactly what he's got to do. But he's Fred. So he's going to push the button that he's not supposed to push. What's your favorite uh, Fred moment? Do you have a favorite like um, outfit? I like I love his outfit when he goes to the, the ball. Yeah. He's got this, his formal Fred <laughs> outfit. It's like great. Yeah. It's almost a very like Wizard of Oz like with the is, sort yeah. of the way that the, the lollipop kids dress where they're mm-hmm. creepy, but they also like have these very sort of nice and yeah. colorful. Party Oompa Loompas. He's got the he's got the hair. He's got he the does, yeah. up hair. Yeah. I think I mean one of my favorite moments was when he gets his head stuck in the fridge. Yeah. Because it's, it's like it's just yeah. a really good moment of practical effects and it looks, looks great. But yeah. And he's got to like sort of figure out that. And it doesn't cut corners in the way that some of the other ones do, like where he sneezes and he's sort of like bouncing around the house using very limited uh, digital effects at the time or however (laughs) they did that. Um, But yeah, I think probably the fridge, because you get uh, like several moments where you have a lot of creativity allowed with how they design him and Mm -hmm. like they have obviously like some fake rubber neck where he's first like stretching his neck out, trying to get it out of the fridge. And then when it finally pops free, he's got this 
giant like hey arnold style flattened head Mm -hmm. Uh, so I really love that. And then, of course, the scene where they, they make the mud pies. I love that scene because it's yeah, just yeah. it's such a mess. And then the the cornflakes gag and how they're spraying <laughs> cornflakes all over the place. There's the woman who's just hit with a bunch of paint. You know, she's just doing gardening. <laughs> hey, so it's grandma. Like a bucket of paint <laughs> just right in her face. I was like, wow, that's, that looks like kind of painful. I don't know. Yeah. Pretty, pretty actors get hit with a gallon of paint right in the face. And I think that was. Yeah. Uh, that was somebody's mom. It was one of the crew. It might have even been the director's mom or oh, one of the yeah. writer's mom. But oh. hey, you want to be in my movie and get a bucket of paint <laughs> thrown in your face? Be like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, so hey, it's, good a, it's, for, a, good it's immortalized in cinema. Yeah. Now's probably a good time to go to Critics Corner. Mm-hmm. We can see all of the, what, what was it, a 25% on the, where did I put those? So many tabs open. Come on, there's somewhere in here. All right, I'll just. I, I will say one other thing I like about the film actually yeah, go is for that it. right at the end, you do get a really emotional Rick Mail moment. With, yeah. uh, having seen a lot of his stuff, he very rarely like acts. Uh, you know, acts regularly. He's you rarely you rarely see him just like with a straight face. He's usually playing kind of a character or kind of very animated. And it's one of the few times that you actually see him just kind of be quiet. And it, for me, it's very affecting, actually, that, that that last scene where he's trying to help Elizabeth. Yeah, it's like everything looks, is toned looks, down. He looks like Robert Smith from The Cure for some reason. That's what I was thinking of when he was in the doorway. Yeah. So he kind of looked like a sad Cure song right now. And he is uh, he's very sincere. And then if you were able yeah. to sort of understand and if you're able to understand that what it really is is like elizabeth is embracing herself she's hugging herself and she's like Mm -hmm. performing the act of actually loving herself for really the first time since childhood like it makes that moment a lot more powerful and i think that's something that uh both rick and phoebe cates understood in that moment but also like if you if you don't pick up on all this other stuff you're like well why is she like kissing her non-romantic love interest imaginary friend on the (laughs) lips yeah so it is very weird in that way if you don't accept that like this is really an act of her loving herself because Mm -hmm. in that shot like as they kiss and then embrace uh like he dissolves and she's left just hugging herself and i'm like this is exactly what this scene is supposed to mean but if you take it like a little bit too literally it's like oh was he was she supposed to be in love with him this whole time like it brings in a weird question that doesn't really shouldn't be there okay uh yeah let's go to critics corner and see like i said it's a 25 uh meta score oh it has a zero so there's there's been a few movies that I've <laughs> that I've read where there's a zero review. Thanks. So and this is Owen Gleiberman. Uh occasionally writes some good reviews, but I do I do uh quote him a lot here because mm-hmm. Entertainment Weekly is often featured. Uh and he gave it a zero. He says, as the naughty ghost pal of Phoebe Cates, an obnoxious British actor named Rick Mayall is like Michael Keaton's Beetlejuice without the juice. In Drop Dead Fred, all he does is smash and spill things and say many, many potty words. So, yeah, this is a guy or this is I I don't know if he was just having a bad day, but it seems like he went to this movie with a stick up his ass. So, Owen, you got to chill out because didn't didn't take to Rick Mail's uh, comment. I don't know who this guy is, but he's obnoxious and he's a (laughs) a ghost. Uh, No, he's not a ghost, sir. 
So I mean, I think Fred is supposed to be a little bit obnoxious. I think that's the whole kind of idea. He's exactly. like a punk. You know, he's like a right. guy who kind of kicks the cans over. And when when part of the criticism is he says too many potty words, it's like you're an adult man writing for entertainment. Movie. <laughs> you should be able to handle some potty words. And this movie is yeah. still PG-13. So it's really not that bad. What does he say? He said, bitch. I think it's the worst thing he says mm-hmm. in the whole movie. So, um, yeah, he says it like twice. I think that's probably it. OK. So, mm-hmm. Owen, you can chill out, my man. Uh, but we'll we'll probably read another quote of his at some point on a different movie. Uh, the next one up the ladder is a 25 from the Baltimore Sun. There is no name attached to this, but it says this film is in desperate need of flow. It plays like a collection of bits, skits that have been thrown together with little eye to continuity. So, I mean, I think at least he understands that the humor is coming from a place of sort of Rick Mayall enjoying making skits. And that, I, think, I think that's a fair enough criticism to say yeah. it feels a little like disjointed and like a bunch of skits for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair, at least. I mean, he, he didn't even say it's horrible. Like, that's way better than mm. the zero. So I'll, I'll take that yeah. and say that, hey, you know what, maybe... Maybe it's disjointed, but you secretly liked it. Um, mm-hmm. We've got... Uh, okay, we've got a 30 from the New York Times. Is Stephen Holden. So Drop Dead Fred wants to be an offbeat cross between Harvey and Beetlejuice. But it's more like a shrill, interminable episode of I Dream of Genie. So again, I think you sort of <laughs> misunderstanding that like this is yeah. not a genie. This isn't a ghost, as I've seen, as, uh, <laughs> as Mr. Gleiberman mm-hmm. said as well. So... I think a big part of the issue with this movie is people sort of not being able to grasp that this is an allegory for coping with abuse. And it doesn't necessarily come right out and say it like you have to do the work and you may even have to Mm -hmm. do it more than once because, you know, I saw this as a kid and then I rewatched it like probably when I was an adolescent and then again in my early 20s and then again, you know, maybe a month or two ago. So this is a movie that I've watched probably at least 10 times throughout the course of my Mm -hmm. life. So it's a movie that I know pretty well. But even when I had heard before I watched it most recently that the the criticisms of this were still in place before I watched it, I was sitting down with my fiance telling her like, oh, no, like this is a movie about trauma and about like dealing with uh, like your parents and how they sort of like impact your formative years and then how that relationship changes and where you start to strike the balance of becoming yourself and not being just a clone of your parents. So it's something that I was maybe more aware of because I saw it a bunch, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, like you would watch it for the first time. It's, it's maybe you're expecting a bit more from, from, (laughs) from that. I wonder if the film had a stronger like visual aesthetic would that have helped? I mean, I, maybe to Tim Burton kind of, not necessarily Tim Burton, but the fact that he does have a strong visual style. Uh, and I think if you maybe had an, a director with a stronger visual style, would that have helped audiences understand these things a little bit more? But then you've got Rick Mail just being Rick Mail, and it's like you yeah. kind of have to, how do you work that into it without, you know, conflicting or making it feel weird? I, like, I don't know yeah. if Rick Mail can exist in a, Tim Burton universe it, it would just be jarring I know that's a good point I mean Tim Burton would have brought the built-in audience which would have allowed mm. more people to see this which probably would have been a good thing but yeah having come from Beetlejuice 2 you would hope that there would be room for Rick Mayall to exist as this character but mm-hmm. I don't know if Tim Burton has ever 
if he could set something in as plain of a setting as Minnesota and have it work yeah. like that, because like even Edward Scissorhands is very like manicured and colorful, like in suburbia, stylized but suburbia. very yeah. gothic up on the hill where he lives in this like yeah. dark and monotone castle. Yeah. Okay. And we got three forties on the board from timeout from TV guide magazine and from empire. So I will let you choose mm-hmm. any of those three and we'll go with that one. I used to read Empire actually, so let's 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 right. do that one. Yeah. Angie Erigo, Erigo maybe. There mm-hmm. is scarcely a laugh to be had unless you are six years old or immoderately fond of such <laughs> wheezes as depositing dog poop on a white carpet. Well, I this am is a, a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think, understand. Yeah, it's very, it's very. Uh, I feel attacked by this review, is what I'll say. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like. Look, I forgot who I was talking to, but I was like, I'm almost 40 and I'll still laugh at fart jokes. I still think they're funny. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. my dog is asleep on the couch and she has like an audible fart. I'll still laugh. And yeah, Yeah. it's funny. It's always going to be funny to me. And I don't need this movie to like have highbrow humor. Like, I understand what this movie is. It's okay to have. Mm -hmm like snot face and boogers and fart jokes and dog yeah. poop and all that so and, guess... and the, the point is that he is supposed to be gross i mean it is kind of like what we're what they're trying to get because they're just trying to push elizabeth out of her comfort zone yeah so you kind of have to have that little bit of uh and his you know, character was character to it and his character was forged in the fire of her childhood trauma so Mm -hmm. of course he's a child because he doesn't grow he became that part of her personality when she was like six or seven so yes it makes sense but i understand that people are just like yeah i'm I'm above this movie kind of thing but but he is he is the opposite of her i mean he's you know she's supposed to be clean and tidy and dressed nice and he's dressed like a you know like johnny rotten or something and he's like <laughs> he's got the crazy hair and he's just destroying everything and he's got these crazy shoes it's just like yeah he's he's supposed to be all of the things that she wants to she's not allowed to do exactly yeah, uh so take so, that review <laughs> uh so we're moving up we've got 50s on the board now from the los angeles oh. times variety and the seattle times well you pick your poison uh, let's let's do la times la yeah. times all right Michael Wilmington from the LA Times gave it a 50, says Drop Dead Fred is an erratic stab at making madness sensible, a slapstick nightmare that goes too sane, that tries too hard to be both good and rotten. So, look, I think that's fair, because as we talked about, I think one of the biggest issues with this movie is it it's caught between being a PG kids movie for like 10 and under and then being really like a intelligent R-rated dark comedy about childhood trauma and the effects that that has on your psyche as you grow up and what that means for adulthood and how you make really mm-hmm. bad choices with uh, like the person that you're going to partner your life with that is cheating on you and how you're a doormat and so I think at least that is uh, fair but is acknowledging where the film sort of like finds its struggles mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's uh he's kind of playing both sides there a little bit. He is. It, he it, it, liked, he sound liked like he, it. He liked it. Yeah, it's like what how did he feel about that movie? I'm not sure. <laughs> it kind of sounds like he might be just not embarrassed to say that he liked it. 
Yeah, I think that happens a lot. <laughs> like I, I, work, I write for the LA Times. I can't say that I like this. Oh, one really? Because, yeah, it'll, it'll. Yeah. No, I don't. But Michael oh, Wilmington, <laughs> he says, "Ooh, if I work for the LA Times, I'm not able to actually." Yeah, I'm gonna get say that I enjoy this. this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do uh, appreciate when big critics come out and they're like, "Yeah, you know what? I love this." movie yeah. that everybody thinks is crap i just liked it i don't know <laughs> yeah it's there's okay. a few critics that are willing to do that and say you know they like they might dislike a lot of things but then there's a one random you know movie that comes out and they're like yeah i loved it i don't know why yeah there i told the scottish boys like look it's okay to just roll around in the mud you know yeah. it's fun yeah. to just like get dirty and to just like play and have fun like it's yeah. okay I'm, I'm, I'm distrusting of movie fans that don't have you know, a few bad movies in their favorite piles. Yeah. You know, if they, if all they like is highbrow stuff, if all they like is, you know, um, certain kinds of films, it's like, you, you know, you don't like, uh, I'm trying to think of a crap comedy. I don't know. What's that? What, <laughs> what, what Game Night or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Which is a good comedy. I think that's it is. Comedy. Yeah. But yeah, you know, films like that, that they're just there to entertain you. Yeah. And, and I feel okay. like, I feel like there's been sort of like more of a push in the last like 10 years. I don't know if it's just because like I'm on social media more, so I see it more. But I feel like there's been more of a push to like not have fun. Like I don't go to the movie theater so that I can leave the theater feeling like shit. Right. It's like I still want to enjoy the experience of going to the movies and so I think it's okay to have fun with bad movies. I mean, I built the whole yeah. show and concept around it because <laughs> I, and what I've learned is that like in talking to people about the bad movies that they like, it's really about like people and where they sort of draw the lines with the kind of things that they allow themselves to have fun with. And the kind of things where it's like, you have to draw the line and it's like, this is below my, uh, radar <laughs> my radar floor for where i'm gonna see bad movies and i know there's one that came out that it was called like kites and a friend of mine vanessa who runs um mother of movies she sees like all of these really bad movies and we did a mm-hmm. episode on Velocipaster at the beginning of season two and like that's oh, a movie wow. that is intentionally bad but is great yeah. at being intentionally bad and so mm-hmm. The movie Kites, though, is this like, okay, there's killer kites, right? Just it's as crazy and concept, dumb yeah. as it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, I'm a guy who likes the movie Rubber, where there's a tire that goes and like has telekinesis right and yeah. kills people. So yeah. I'm totally okay with just having fun and not like taking the film or myself too seriously in mm-hmm. the process. And then I watch a bunch of critically acclaimed movies and I love those too. And I can separate. Yeah, you can like all and, of those things. Yeah. yeah. So I, I I remember getting a lot of stick when I was younger for liking the cable guy when it when it came out, you know. <laughs> People were like, it's terrible. I was like, no, I thought it was pretty good, you know. I thought and then 20 years later, everyone's fine with it. Yeah, um, that position has could, aged well, huh? Yeah, yeah, there you go. But I think I think uh the the bad movies you like maybe are a better indication of who you are than the good movies you like sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it's more about you, maybe. Yeah, it's a little it's easy to be like, oh, this is a movie that is critically acclaimed and is well made and it sort of has all of the hallmarks of something that will stand the test of time for example and so it's sort of like easy to like hit your wagon to that and be like oh i like this movie that 
everybody for the most part likes and it's like yeah Shawshank Redemption is a great movie I'm not taking that away from Shawshank but I think that's sort of like an easy movie to be like Shawshank's a great movie and I love that movie it's like yeah of course everybody loves Shawshank I've never met anyone who's like ah that movie sucks so (laughs) it's more definitive of who I am to say I like Drop Dead Fred than it is to say that I love Shawshank just as much like they're just very opposite ends of the spectrum (laughs) yeah yeah and you can like both those things you know it's fine yeah yeah. All right. So that brings us to the end where we have the Orlando Sentinel gave it a 70. And this is Jay Boyar. Oh, wow. So it's the only uh, net positive review on the board. But that's a seven out of 10. So that's pretty solid. And I'll say mm-hmm. uh, he says, I had fun watching Drop Dead Fred, but I want to take special care not to raise expectations unrealistically by overpraising it. The movie is no comic masterpiece, but it is consistently amusing in a way that sometimes reminded me of a kitty picture and other times of a more sophisticated comedy. And so, look, he's able to echo the sentiments that we've seen in several other of these reviews that you and I have talked about, but Mm -hmm. also to just acknowledge I had fun watching this movie it maybe isn't perfect it doesn't hit its notes all that well. It's not maybe the comedic masterpiece that some of these other movies are, but he understands that it's trying to do this and it's trying to do this and it's having a hard time maybe marrying them both, but it's still okay to have fun watching it. So Jay at the Orlando Sentinel, I don't think you're ever going to hear this, but respect. <laughs> and this is from 1991. Yeah, so yeah, it's not yeah. even like he revisited this recently. He's the only person that watched it in 91 and was like, you know what? Uh, this is fun. I Everybody else yeah, is crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. That's a nice review. Yeah. It is. So it's, it's a nice one uh, to end on. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've covered a lot of ground here and I still do have my little uh, thing that I wrote for movie friends. So I want to circle back to that. I'm just going to read it here. It's a couple of paragraphs um, But I've seen Drop Dead Fred many times over the years from childhood to adulthood. And it's more than fair to say that it's one of my favorite movies. But in the name of due diligence, I watched it again recently to see if my position had wavered and found that it's just as good, if not better than ever. Well, it may be easy to get put off or be dismissive of the admittedly childish and cartoonish vulgarity of the slapstick nature on its surface. This isn't a story about magic or fantasy. This film is really an allegory for childhood trauma, and the character of Fred is Elizabeth's trauma response to the abuse she receives at the hands of her mother. Fred doesn't really exist. He isn't a genie in a bottle, despite popping out of a jack-in-the-box. He's a coping mechanism that was born out of necessity for Elizabeth to protect herself from the emotional abuse she received as a child. That's why he operates in the crude and immature way that he does, because he's a manifestation of Elizabeth's childhood mind. Fred exists only in her mind, and in rewatching it, I sort of see him as her id. He's there to help her satisfy her basic needs and wants for things like fun, playfulness, affection, and even the unconditional kind of love that she doesn't really get from her mother. He's that part of her that wants her to stand up for herself, believe in herself, have fun, and also lash out against those who aim to do her harm, namely her mother and her on-again, off-again husband, Charles. When we meet Elizabeth as an adult, she's just lost her job, her purse, her car, and her husband. She's at rock bottom and her mother has wrestled away control of her life once again. When reminded of Fred, the first thing she recalls is that he was always looking out for her, and when he first reappears, he tells her that he cannot move on until she is happy. 
From that moment on, what we're really witnessing is her inner child struggling to break free from her mother and the constraints her mother deems as the parameters of being a quote-unquote proper woman. There's a reason why the film's climax takes us to a hyper-stylized, symbolic manifestation of a twisted nightmare rendition of her childhood home, and ends with her literally freeing the childhood version of herself who's bound to a bed. The physical acting from Phoebe Cates and Rick Mayall is fantastic. We get to see great supporting performances from Carrie Fisher and Tim Matheson, and Ashley Peldon still gives one of my favorite performances from a childhood actor of all time, even though it is definitely not a kid's movie and I could see how the accompanying score might be confusing tone-wise. Drop Dead Fred is a lot smarter, deeper, and more genuinely heartfelt than its critics would suggest, and this is a film that I would like to see an R-rated director's cut for. But in the meantime, I'm proud to stand up for it and lead the Drop Dead Fred army into battle and raise the banner for its Bad Movies We Love Hall of Fame induction ceremony. So that's today. We're inducting <laughs> Drop Dead Fred into wow. the Bad Movies We Love <laughs> Hall of Fame. So I'll insert some nice trumpet music for that. And uh, thank nice. you for joining me to be part of this and for jumping at the chance to talk about Drop Dead Fred. So I want to ask you, is there anything that we didn't get to cover that uh, you wanted to bring to the table? Uh, no, I think I think I think we covered pretty much everything I wanted to cover. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that there are more Drop Dead Fred, Drop Dead Fred fans out there. Uh, Look, there might be three much, of us, but it's OK. Yeah. <laughs> That's three yeah, more it's than pretty much me and my siblings. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we've been we've been keeping the flame alive, so. Maybe maybe a few more people will check it out and be a little more understanding and uh, you know be willing to to give it a chance and yeah I think everyone should have a little Rick Mail in their lives and a little chaotic energy and uh, you know embrace embrace their inner Fred. That's a good way to put it. Everybody embrace your inner Fred. Don't go like too crazy. Don't sing a yeah. houseboat or anything, but yeah. you know, find who you are and embrace the weird things that make you who you are. And don't be afraid of that stuff. Um, but for people who maybe haven't seen Drop Dead Fred, which I still assume is a fair amount of people, mm -hmm. um, what's a good movie that is more popular that people probably have seen that would maybe operate in the same neighborhood that would help convince people to see drop dead Fred? I, so I, I wrote that i wrote down a few films that i felt like okay. it kind of had similarities to but very different vibe uh the beetlejuice one has been mentioned numerous times uh harvey i think was mentioned in one of those reviews mm -hmm. which is a uh, 1950 film with um jimmy stewart and he sees okay. a giant rabbit who's helping him through his life mm. um that's a really good movie uh, okay. and then the other one somebody said it was like it's like mary poppins on drugs yeah <laughs> it's kind of mary poppins good, on actually. different drugs on different mary drugs yeah yeah i saw when we saw the new mary poppins, poppins i was like oh my goodness i was like i didn't see it actually imagine yeah. a dolphin just appearing in your bathtub that shit yeah. would be terrifying <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that's a good one i don't know that i have like a great one from that time frame that would fit i think yeah like if you like beetlejuice you may be more willing to entertain sort of the zaniness of this and <laughs> then you will also if you like Beetlejuice and you can sort of imagine a universe where Tim Burton uh, put his spin on Drop Dead Fred, then maybe you can make that jump a little bit. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I don't know that I have anything that really like lines up with this one too well. I don't know Rick Mayall's body of work enough to really 
have any input on that but uh you had mentioned bottom which popped up as well is that a tv show or is that a bottom was a, a tv show they had they had a lot of live specials as well and i think there was a movie made i actually never saw that movie but um and then they had another show before that when he was like quite young hmm. uh called the young ones and that's the one that had uh, musical guests and it had motorhead and stuff like that on it um and that was just all of them living in this like poor flat and they were all just like students and they were just poor mm. and got into hijinks and it was a very very kind of slapsticky very irreverent punk show i mean it was very popular in the punk era so yeah um if you can find episodes of that online i'm sure there probably are a few there's definitely clips uh of that and black adder because i watched them recently yeah, um, they've, they've got if you want some more somewhere. rick male energy in your life that that's I, probably the way to go i do yeah <laughs> so i'm gonna go looking for it yeah. uh, check out but, the black adder stuff it's good i will uh but dara thank you so much for thank you joining me for this i'm really glad yeah. that this was the first the first movie on the wish list that anybody reached out to me about felicia was like oh my partner yeah i mean i messaged her instantly when i was listening to it i was on i was on a bus (laughs) i was like yo i i would talk about drop dead fred yeah uh that's awesome Uh, i'm very glad i know i'm so glad that this was like the first one from the wish list because when i initially wanted to make this show this was right there at the top like it's like this Mm -hmm. water world biodome Oh, I love and, Biodome, actually. Yeah, I yeah. listened to that episode recently. Those are probably like the three that are the ones that really made me want to do the show and think that there mm-hmm. was like a substantial amount of ground to cover. I mean, and then I folded in other things like some of the really bad Schumacher Batman movies and Mortal Kombat and stuff. Yeah. But this was one of the first ones that I thought of. It's on the poster. It's on like the the cover yeah, art I saw for that. this yeah. show as well. <laughs> so again, I just wanted to thank you for your time and for uh, reaching out and not hesitating to share your love for Drop Dead Fred, because I know a lot of people have hesitated to share their love for it, or they just uh, haven't seen it yet and they're not ready to share their love and to love it so uh i I appreciate your time really sincerely thank you so much thank you thank you uh it was a lot of fun yeah i'm very proud of my uh being a fright head i guess (laughs) (laughs) drop dead fred army yeah yeah thank you my sincerest thanks once again to Dara for joining me, and you can find him and his movie reviews on Letterboxd at Dara McGee. Check out his film Insta at DreamWorlds underscore film, and you can check out his guest spots on the Seeing Faces in Movies podcast. And I've got you covered with all of that information posted into the show notes. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. And the new support page is live at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash badmovieswelove. I'd love to hear from you, so if you have a bad movie you love and or maybe would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me now at badmovieswelove at thescheiss.com or badmovieswelove on Twitter and Instagram, and that's love with an L-U-V. And as always, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies.